Well, we had a brilliant week away. Uh, not much of it was holidays, although we were both officially on holidays from our workplaces. But we went to the ACC, Australian Christian Churches, Queensland Northern Territory State Conference, and it was brilliant. And uh, the whole it was the whole thing was anointed, frankly. Um, those of you who follow us on Facebook, you'll know I'll put a post up with a little, with the little caption that said, "This is the sound of twelve hundred people in prayer." It was amazing. There were about 1,200 people there and one afternoon. We were invited simply all to pray. And everybody prayed out loud. It was incredible. There's just something special about being with so many other Christians. The worship, of course, was amazing. And one of the most memorable things, I think, for me was that on the opening night, everyone who was there, and there were over 1,000 people in that auditorium, were, they were invited to come forward to be anointed with oil. And uh, they took a big risk in, in, in trying to organise that. Doing that with a thousand people is no, no small task. And uh, Jeanette said to me afterwards, well, what did they pray over you? And I said, I tried really hard to remember. But all I could remember was that they prayed that I would have more ability. Well, hallelujah, praise God. I would love to have more ability at just about everything. Um, clapping in time would be good to start with. Uh, <laughs> it'd be good for everybody. But no, that's what I remember. I oh, know they prayed other things as well. But Well, praise God. Praise God that, that someone discerned that I needed more ability. Well, hallelujah, praise God it will happen in whatever area. I need it. I just love that. I love it. A couple of other things too. Um, Planet Shakers, next year, it'll be 17th to the 18th of April next year, is moving from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, to the Convention Centre. They're taking a big, big step of faith and moving it to the Convention Centre, which is going to cost them a lot of money. And uh, they raised $5,000 in one um, offering I think that was on Tuesday night last week at the conference to help um, assist with, with this. But um, you, you younger ones in particular want to get along to Planet Shakers because it's doing things all around the world. It's a kind of movement within a movement these days. And um, there, there are some, there's some special early bird pricing. I'll leave this up on the back table if you want to have a look at that. The other thing is there's a new word for today out and... Uh, Vision 180, there are copies up there on the back table. Feel free to take them. That's what they're here for. And there's also a new catalogue out from um, Vision, from Vision Media. Uh, they're a great organisation. I've done a little bit of work for them in the past, helping them out with a few little things. And uh, it's wonderful to have the Word of God available through radio almost all over our nation now. And uh, I can remember in the early days, uh, Jeanette and I were part of the very, very early days of what is now Vision Media, when there was hardly any Christian media in Australia at all, and that's not all that long ago. Back to the early 1990s, there were four or five radio stations that had special licences. The, uh, the then government opened up the licensing system and made it possible for other Christian organisations <coughs> to have uh, radio licences. We were one of those organisations up in Toowoomba, that was able to get a radio licence and that radio station has been going for 20 years. <coughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? So praise the Lord. 
Well, a couple of other things. I'm not going to get through my whole discussion point today, but that's okay. That's quite okay because there will be another time. So I feel very relaxed about that. I'm much more, I want to see God move, yeah. you know. And I can tell you this, when we all get to heaven, you're going to be much more interested in hearing about the miracles than about the preaching. I believe that. And so we can always pick up where we, where we leave off uh, next time we gather together. I do want to um, just say something about our, our pre-service prayer. As you know, we meet together at 9am, <coughs> running from about 9am until 9.15 or 9.20 to pray prior to, to our service. Uh, this morning, the God gave the God, <laughs> our God, the one and only God, gave uh, Liz two words. They were purpose and provision. And she spoke out prophetically about the idea that not all of us necessarily know our purpose. And even those of us who might think we do, we might go to God and find that he's refining our purpose or shifting our direction a little bit. And you know, when we respond to God according to the purpose for which he has called us, the next thing is provision. So it's not just purpose, but provision as well. That when we respond, God provides. That was the gist of what you said, wasn't it, Liz? You said it uh, a lot more eloquently than me. That's, <laughs> but I've had time to think about it, haven't I? I've had time to think about it. But um, God bless you for bringing that word because, you know, the word is not just for the one person you see. It's for the whole of the body gathered together. So purpose and provision. When you discern your purpose, when you act in line with the purpose for which God has called you, He will provide. He doesn't leave you on your own. Amen. There's one other thing I want to say before I get into our, our discussion point today, and that is the reason why I don't call these things sermons, but we call them discussion points, is that I'm really keen for us to discuss what we hear on, on Sundays. You know, I don't profess to know everything. And I don't profess even to get it right all the time. So it's really good that we have some, some interaction. <coughs> and uh, I did receive a text message during the week. Because last week, remember, I, I didn't actually do what I had prepared to do because I felt God wanted me to speak on Genesis 1, 2 and 3 about dominion, accountability, and about the fact that God wants to walk with us in the garden in the cool of the evening and simply chat with us about our dominion and about our accountability. And he wants to help us in everything that we do. So that's what we ended up doing last week. And uh, I got a text message during the week and uh, just raising a really interesting point that God, when he spoke and created light, he called that day... And when he spoke and created the dark, he called that night. So in fact, the dominion that God delegated to humanity is in total dominion over every single thing that God had created. But it's over everything he put in the earth. So that's, our, that's the realm, if you like, of, of our dominion. And I think that's a really important point. And I, I'm really glad that we were able to have a little discussion 
via text messaging on that point. Because it's true that God delegated to us royal authority, but it's not over everything. And that tends to be how kings work, right? They don't cede all of their power and authority to somebody else. It's partial. And so what God has delegated to humanity is dominion over everything you place on the earth. And he holds us accountable, of course, for the way in which we exercise that dominion. But he doesn't leave us on our own to exercise that dominion. And as I mentioned last week, prayer is the modern day analogue to walking with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. So keep it up, by all means. We, we want to keep discussing what we hear from what you might call the pulpit or from the front of the, of the stage. So I love it. We like to have discussion. And of course, me being an academic, that's what my life is about, discussing things. And the, um, it's a good thing. So let's keep doing it. All right. Well, what we want to do today is to continue our discussion of the book of Revelation. And this is actually our ninth if you like, in the series, spread over a period of time. And uh, we're only up to Revelation chapter 6. So this is the point at which the seals on the scroll are broken. And of course, you can't actually read what's on a scroll until you break the seals. And this scroll that John saw in his vision was different to many other scrolls because it actually had seven seals on it. So in Revelation chapter 6, we read about the first six seals. The seventh doesn't come until Revelation chapter 8. Now Revelation 6, by way of introduction, is, is probably what Jesus referred to as the beginning of sorrows. And uh, the beginning of sorrows is not the beginning of the tribulation period itself, that comes a little later when we deal with the seven trumpets. Now to place Revelation chapter 6 into some context, I want to read to you from Matthew 24, uh, verses 3 to 31. And I'm using the New King James version of the Bible because I think you'll be more familiar with the language here than in the New Living Translation, which I've tended to use in our discussion on the book of Revelation. So this is Matthew 24, uh, verses 3 to 20, 21. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking him about his second coming. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for, in all, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Now that's interesting, because kingdom against kingdom is not necessarily a reference to countries, 
but it's a reference to groups. And uh, that might point to civil war, and we'll talk a little bit about that in relation to Revelation 6 shortly. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on a housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. So that's a little bit of background to Revelation chapter 6. I think those words of Jesus help us understand something about these seven seals. So let us move to a reading of the first couple of verses in chapter 6. And the I here, of course, is John, who's receiving a vision about the end times. As I watched, the Lamb broke, who's Jesus by the way, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings saying with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now just a couple of points here. The first thing, we've, we've come across the living beings before, remember these living beings were full of eyes. There was one that looked like a lion, one like a calf, one like a man, and one like an eagle. And the, the, the meaning of the seven eyes most likely is all-seeing. So it's a representation of the God who sees everything. <coughs> uh, one other point too, a lot of translations will say something like come here or come up not just come and uh, most theologians today or Bible translators today argue that come on its own is the best translation and it's actually an invitation or even an order to the horseman and it lets the horseman loose the white horse throughout most of scripture at any rate is uh, indicative or representative of international power politics. Although some commentators say the rider on the white horse represents Jesus, who ultimately, of course, conquers all. It's quite interesting in uh, reading through and, and studying 
a revelation, of, as I've said to you before, because there are so many different perspectives on trying to understand it. But if we understand it, at least for the moment, as pointing to international turmoil, and then we'll see how that fits with the other things that are going on in terms of the breaking of the seals. So many commentators would argue that this, this white horse and the, and the rider are symbolic of international wars. Remember Jesus said there'll be wars and rumours of wars. Nation against nation. And this will be one of the things that preempts what we call the tribulation. Notice the reference to battles and, and gaining the victory. People living at the time would have had an appreciation because despite the fact that the Romans said there was peace, there were always skirmishes on their borders. Their borders were never secure. So the first horse, the white horse, represents international power politics and perhaps war on an international scale. Moving on to verse 3. When the Lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. There was war and slaughter everywhere. Remember Jesus said, not only would there be war nation against nation, but kingdom against kingdom. We can see this as a clash of world views within nations. A clash that becomes so strong that it leads to civil war and strife. And indeed the red horse represents civil war and strife. It's symbolic of violence and death. In fact, that expression mighty sword associated with war, it appears over a hundred times in that sense in the Old Testament. So definitely the readers, the early readers of what John had written would have had an understanding of its implications. The ancients actually viewed civil war as far, far worse than a war between nations. Because in a civil war, it's your own people against whom you are fighting. And often in civil war, there's much more atrocity than there is in a war against nations. So we have what appears to be international wars associated with the first seal, civil war, disruption, unrest associated with the second seal. We move on to verse 5. When the Lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being, being say, Come. 
I looked up and saw a black horse and the rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand and I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay and don't waste the olive oil and wine. The black horse was indicative of economic <coughs> disruption. And when you look at the historical prices of grain in New Testament times, this passage indicates severe inflation. And even here, it points to the price of staples, food staples, being somewhere between 5 to 15 times what they normally were. Now it's very interesting because we're living in a period where there are very low inflation rates around the world and in fact in Australia at the moment that the policy makers actually want more inflation because they say that there just isn't enough inflation, wages are not rising, uh, prices are not adjusting and as a consequence consumer and business confidence is down. So they're actually saying a little bit of inflation would be a good thing. It's very interesting how there is actually the potential for very high rates of inflation inherent in the kinds of policies that governments through their central banks like the Reserve Bank of Australia have been implementing for more than a decade now. I, I won't go into that in any great detail, perhaps that's something we could talk about another time because as a professional economist I'm very interested in what's going on globally in terms of <coughs> government and central bank responses to economic <coughs> conditions. And of course there are, there are times in history and in fairly recent history for that in countries like Zimbabwe where we've had what we call hyperinflation where rates of inflation are very, very high, like thousands of percent per year. And the greatest inflation ever in human history was in Austria after the First World War. And you may have seen pictures of people in Germany too, for that matter, who were being, they were paid twice a day. And at lunchtime they would fill wheelbarrows up with Deutschmarks and they would go to buy a loaf of bread they didn't wait until the end of the day because the price of bread would have quadrupled or more by then. Totally out of control. Now this doesn't point to something as out of control of that, as out of control of that, but inflation rates as high as those that are portrayed here will make it difficult for the average person to survive economically. Another interesting point is that there's reference right at the end of uh, verse 6 to olive oil and wine. And many commentators are saying that that indicates that this period of economic, economic disruption through inflation won't be a permanent uh, experience. The reason being the, the olive tree and the grapevines have deep roots. And generally speaking, uh, in war, the armies did not uproot olive trees and they didn't trash vineyards. 
And it was only the cruelest of oppressors who ever did that because it would take years and years and years to re-establish those crops to the point where they become productive. But during this time, if prices rise as much as indicated in this passage, there will be many people who die of starvation or malnutrition. So that doesn't look too happy, does it? Moving on, verse 7, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being saying, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose colour was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. Well, many translations say Hades. These two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. And again, this is consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Widespread disease and death on the earth. Probably restricted because it talks about one quarter of the earth. 25% of the earth's surface. Hades, or, or, or the grave, was uh, generally regarded as a kind of temporary abode where the body decayed, wasn't hell. And uh, the Bible actually says that Hades is actually going to be destroyed at the end of human history. It's not the same thing as uh, the ultimate um, fiery end that will come to the devil and to the demons and to those who have not become <coughs> followers of Jesus Christ. The pale horse represents disease and death. So what have we got? We've got wars, both international and civil wars. We've got economic disruption. We've got disease and death on a fairly widespread scale. Next, verse 9, the cry of the martyrs. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them that's a symbol of purity. And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. This is a, a difficult passage in many ways. Uh, symbolically, uh, we're talking about those who have been martyred under the altar. That Typically, in, in blood sacrifices, the blood was poured at the bottom of the altar. So... It's representative of the blood shed by, by the martyrs. But their cry is, how long? How long will it be, Lord? And this is an interesting, I guess, aspect of the nature of God. You see, because He's a God of mercy as well as judgment. It cannot bring God any pleasure at all to see any of His children martyred. 
We know that there are parts of the earth today where Christians are still being tortured and being <coughs> slaughtered. There are many martyrs. In fact, in the 20th century, there were more martyrs than there had been in the whole of previous human history. And there are still many, many societies that actively persecute Christians. And well might we sometimes ask ourselves, how long? How long? But God says, wait. <clears throat> and why does he say wait? Because he's also a God of mercy. The Bible tells us he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. And because he doesn't treat us like puppets on a string, because he's given us free will, he must give us free will, otherwise he's not a God of love. He's patient. And although there might be times when we suffer, some of us, who knows, may well be martyred. We can be assured that that is something God anguishes over. But at the same time, he's waiting. He's waiting for others to come. The fifth seal. The sixth seal. As I watched, oh, sorry, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all of the mountains and the islands were moved from their places. Cosmic disturbances now. Not only are things happening on the earth, but things are happening in the whole of the cosmos. It's interesting to read different commentators because they are at opposite ends of the spectrum in some respects. I have one set of commentaries that talks about a real earthquake that literally moves the mountains. I have another commentary that says that it's simply um, figurative, that it's just a, a metaphor for a more, um, I guess, a mental, emotional kind of disturbance that comes upon the people in the earth. But if you go back to what Jesus said, he talked about earthquakes. And if you look at the meaning of the Greek used, my own opinion is that we are talking about something that physically happens. Now, of course, the earth has been hit by asteroids or meteorites in the past. And uh, the, the most recent, fairly significant one, I think was in about 2013, not all that long ago. There's a, a not-for-profit group in the United States. I've done a little bit of research. I'm pretty sure they're authentic. And we can take what they say with a degree of confidence. It's called the B6112 Foundation. This is what they say. It's a 100% certainty that we'll be hit by a devastating asteroid 
that is, the Earth will be hit by a devastating asteroid, but we're not 100% sure when. Stephen Hawking, hands up all those who have heard of Stephen Hawking, pretty famous uh, academic, writer, professor. He died a few years ago now, but in his last book, this is what he said. The biggest threat to Earth is being hit by an asteroid. The biggest, so forget about all the other stuff that's going on in the media and about people who are gluing themselves to the road in Brisbane and so on. <laughs> what they, there isn't going to be that kind of extinction, right? So a rebellion's a waste of time. That kind of rebellion is a waste of time. But as Jesus said, at the end, you see, because it'll become so obvious that humanity cannot exercise dominion appropriately because of sin. Nation will fight against nation. There will be civil war. There'll be death and destruction. And ultimately, of course, the earth will be destroyed and it will be recreated because God says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, you better enjoy lunch today, folks, because you never know what will happen tomorrow. <laughs> you never know. I do have one more slide that I just want to refer to, and then we'll have some community time if you're going. <clears throat> then everyone... So after all this has happened, after all this has happened, everyone, and the everyone we're talking about here is actually the people who are unsaved. And we'll explain more about that next week and in coming weeks. But then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, that actually means everyone. Right? Not just some, but everyone. We're talking here about those who are not saved. They all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Well, you know what? Many theologians who have written about this passage say, you know, these are the people who, even in the face of all the evidence that God exists, still choose to refuse Him. But they, know him, but they also know that He... They recognise Him, same as the demons do. They recognise, but they refuse to acknowledge Him. That is the ultimate, isn't it? of where secular humanism is taking us. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? But yet they will not bow down and worship Jesus. Well, this probably wouldn't make a very good salvation <laughs> message. <laughs> And uh, when I was at the conference, we were actually told, don't preach on stuff like this. Because <laughs> it's not going to get people to come to church. And they're probably right. They're probably right. But as you know, God spoke to me late last year and said, I want you to preach out of the book of Revelation. So I'll go with God for the time being. Although he might 
actually speak and say maybe we should do it in a different venue. But, you know, the book of Revelation is really important. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It focuses on the end times, the consummation of human history. Things are going to be different when Jesus returns. I mentioned two weeks ago that I would need to spend some time talking about the tribulation and the idea of the rapture. And as I was preparing uh, early this morning, going over my notes, I realised that probably next week was a week we can't go much further without addressing that issue. And the, the issue of the rapture is particularly important because it's a relatively recent idea that uh, it, it, it grew during the 18th century. And then uh, Darby, who did a translation of the Bible, um, he did a lot of research and published his findings in 1833. And so the idea of the rapture is a relatively recent um, idea. It really took hold in the United States, particularly in the early uh, 19th through to the early 20th century. So we need to spend some time talking about it because all of us are really going to have to make up our minds about one, whether it happens, and two, when it happens. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to, to give you enough information for you to be able to work out your position on things like the rapture and the time of tribulation. Because these things do matter. If they didn't matter, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. And if they didn't matter, the book of Revelation wouldn't say there'll be a blessing for the one who teaches it and a blessing for the one who hears it. And uh, I believe that the word of God is true, so I believe that there is a blessing attached to us discussing the book of Revelation.